You are listening to the In Perspective Weekly Podcast with Bob Branco and Peter Outchul. Hi, everyone. Welcome once again to In Perspective. My name is Bob Branco, and this is episode 282, dated Friday, November the 4th. 2022. Incidentally, last week I said we were in 2002 when I stated the date. Obviously, that was a long time ago. It's 2022, obviously. Let me introduce our good friend and colleague, Peter Alchel. Peter, what's happening today? Well, uh, usually I give a summary of the weather, which uh, is sort of playful, but not really relevant. But it is sort of relevant today, perhaps, because right as we speak, it is something like 82 degrees here, and winds gusting to 40 miles an hour. We are expecting some fairly violent weather this evening. So, Well, uh, it's interesting you should talk about that weather because this weekend we're going to be in the 70s, which is not common for this time of the year. Yep. That's probably the weather that you have. It's coming this way. Coming your way, and then you, you might get the, the stormy weather afterwards. That we're Probably because yep. of the extreme. Yeah, yeah. I want to thank those people who make it possible for In Perspective to be available to the public. We start out with Raymond Gay, our producer, Tom and Lynn from Rosie's Place, Bulletin Board 15 is where they put In Perspective. Thank you very much, Tom and Lynn. I want to thank our media outlets for airing our program when they can. Thank you very much. And finally, I want to thank Jacqueline Sylvia of JS Web Solutions. She archives our programs on my website. Just go to www.brancoevents.com, click on the In Perspective shows, and you will see our archives from latest to earliest. I also Merci, want to, Jackie. Yeah, exactly. I also want to give a shout-out to a faithful listener to our program, Lillian Johnson. Sometimes she listens in on the calls, but very rarely, if ever, does she participate. Lillian, if you're listening, you're welcome to participate later on. Speaking of weather, that's going to be our topic of conversation today. We have back with us for a second appearance on In Perspective, climate change activist and student of the weather, Steve Roberts. Steve, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well, uh, Bob. All is going well. I'm Still cranking out concept. I'm, I basically reimagined the whys and what's of weather, <clears throat> and I'm in the process of of putting all of the the new elements into the into the book. When the whys and what's of weather was originally produced, it was a general interest weather book. Now it's going to be a general interest weather book that becomes a book about extreme weather and climate change. The idea is that. You can read the book and understand how the weather works to understand what it is we're doing to drive it crazy. So that I should, I should have added that you, I should have added that you are an author as well. So you you're the master of all trades, pretty much, Steve. You know, I, so Steve, I do Steve. everything. I've everything but the degree in meteorology. You know, I just you know I've loved the weather since I could walk and talk and look out the window. And this is a, I'm living the dream basically. So it's really good. Steve, what is uh, the book? When the wise and what's of weather is fully completed, it will be the whys and what's of weather with an introduction to the dynamic volatile era. Now, the so dynamic Steve, volatile era is an era of extreme weather resulting from climate change. When the jet stream goes across the United States, it's basically the physical embodiment of the weather that it creates. 
When the jet stream goes from Washington and Oregon to New England, that's a zonal flow. The weather in zonal flows is like the jet stream. It's flat. The systems that move along those zonal zip lines are generally fleeting and weak. When the jet stream bulges to the north, the temperatures and pressure are likewise high. When the jet stream undulates to the south as it would in a trough, the temperatures and pressures are likewise low. Precipitation is inversely related to the jet stream. When the jet stream is high, precipitation is low. When the jet stream is low, precipitation is high. And that is particularly so <clears throat> along the eastern side or leeward side of any trough access. So all of the temperature, pressure, and precipitation polarities that are housed within the ridge trough couplets that circumnavigate the, the globe are elements of volatility. But if you're on the eastern side of the trough, that's where the dynamic and volatile meet. You've got the cold air in the trough. You've got the warm air in the neighboring ridge. Then you've got the winds that give you upper-level support from the jet stream. And you've got, the, the, uh, you've got what's called differential advection. And that's southerly winds importing warm air into the trough and northerly winds or cold air advection bringing chilly air into the neighboring trough. So that sets up the temperature difference. It also helps to facilitate the development of storms called vorticity pockets. If you held a braille stylus or a cylindrical item between your hands and moved your hands back and forth, the, the differential motion of your hands would cause the cylindrical implement between both of your hands, or oppositionally moving hands, to spin regardless of how you are mobile myths were moving in relation to one another. So there's a little summation of everything here. Uh, you have questions? I will give you the very best that I have to answer. So Peter has so one. one. So I, I have an easy question for you first, which is when do you think the book will come out? I'm going to try and send this book out for, for release. I'm thinking it will probably be ready for release. Oh, I'm maybe thinking around Valentine's Day, St. Patrick's Day, at the very latest. So that's so, that's what I'm thinking right now. And so we will have to get you back on the on the air when the book comes out. That is correct. Yes, that is correct. Just let us know when that is. Yeah, let us know when that is because I would very much like to uh, interview you about the book in a little more detail. But what what might be helpful for us weather novices? Is you, you use a lot of big words, most of which I didn't catch. Um, yeah, one, yeah. Of the, one of the words you mentioned was the word polarities. And, and if you could sort of think back to all those big words you use and sort of define a little bit, it might be really helpful for us. So if, let's start with the word polarity. What is a polarity? Uh, the, the polarity is the, the oppositional state of the atmosphere, cold, warm, wet, dry. So in troughs, it's cold. In ridges, it's warm. In troughs, the pressure is low. In ridges, the pressure is high. In troughs, it is wet. In ridges, it is generally dry. So all of the, the ridges and troughs that we see um, are characterized by these differences. They, are, they basically are temperature and pressure polarities. They are differences, and those differences that characterize the increasingly extreme weather experiencing as a result of anthropogenic or humanly caused climate change. So, anthropo so that, anthropogenic is a, is a biggie, right? That's, that's the, this climate change. Human cause. We're anthropods. We're right. anthropods. 
Right. So yeah, we are causing climate change. We are so actually causing the. So I have huh? a question. See, yep. Climate's been changing forever. It changed in the first few uh, decades, first few centuries uh, of mankind. You know, BC, uh, AD, before and after Christ. Climate's always been changing. How come we never heard, at least as far as I know, that man was responsible then for the climate changing, but now we do? Because if, if you look at what is at work, we are proliferating the atmosphere with carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, chlorofluorocarbons. And we are doing this on a massive scale. Haven't we always done it? Because a lot of it, from what I understand, involves uh, animal doo-doo, for lack of a better term, and no, things no, like that. No, 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 that, no. That's, you know, the, 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 that's, that's, that's bologna and cheese sandwich prepped with rancid mayo. Uh, animals have been have respirating and flagellating all of our Earth's life. Exactly. That goes under the auspices of what's called the Gaia hypothesis, which basically explains that life generally, be it microbes, fungus, uh, uh, all of that stuff, uh, to hippos and and humanity, uh, real, real release greenhouse gases as a function of our biology. Every time you, you respirate or flatulate, excuse my parlance, you are releasing greenhouse gases of one kind or another into the air. So life is, as we know it, alters the atmosphere by modifying the composition of the atmosphere through the introduction of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Um, but when we burn fossil fuels, we release all sorts of carbon. Before then, we were burning wood on a very small scale. And the scale was so small that the forests and the lakes and the oceans and the ponds of our world were taking up that carbon. So there was no real impact on planetary uh, atmospheric composition. So when we came back from the Ice Age, what was that all about? Well, that was an orbital process. And it's an orbital process that drives increases in temperature. The, the sun was climbing higher in the sky during the, uh, during the, the summer months. And it was getting lower in the sky during the winter months. So we had a lot more seasonality. But the increased seasonality was such that um, we had a warm enough summers so that the snow that fell during the winter didn't persist and that whatever ice was covering the land melted actively. And as the world warmed, microbial activity and, and all of that released carbon dioxide and methane into the air. So the greenhouse effect re reinforced the influence of orbital change, which in turn uh, caused, uh, caused the world to warm. And those increases in temperature um, pervade the climate in such a way as to bring us to what is called an interglacial, which is where we are now. So there you have it. So, so the, the, the major change is when we started uh, using things like electricity, right? Cars, uh, you know, yep. our manufacturing plants, all those things that make life uh, easier for us uh, has That's had correct. the unfortunate effect of 
of of uh, making it more likely to have this sort of weird weather that we that we uh, are more likely to have this weird weather that we that we or we are experiencing. Is that sort of a fair assessment? That's a very fair assessment. If you look at where you live right now, there's an area of low pressure moving along a frontal boundary. It's cold to your west and even warmer than you are just to your east. Mm-hmm. You are at what is called a baroclinic zone. Baroclinicity is the temperature difference that is characterized by a front or a jet stream or a trough. A trough is basically a front that has lost a lot of its character, but you can still have temperature differences or air uh, density differences or moisture concentration differences. You get a warm and humid in front of a trough and cooler and drier with heavier, denser air in the wake of that trough or, or behind it to the west or north of it, depending on how it's propagating. So, yes, that's exactly right. We are yeah. seeing all of that. Uh, you know, so today's uh, today in Missouri, at least in Columbia, is a really unusual day. As I said, it's 82 degrees. It's humid. It's very, very windy. Um, and we're supposed to get a bunch of nasty storms this evening. Uh, and then it's supposed yep. to cool off. And so I, I guess my, and one of the puzzles, I think one of the things that, that makes this area so confusing for us lay people is, uh, you know, this kind of weather is, is unusual, but, ha- but might happen with or without our, our, our spewing stuff into the atmosphere, right? I mean, this, you know, that's this, correct. Yeah. Uh, and so how do you sort of determine, um, you know, which, which part of this is sort of normal, which part of this is, is man-made? I guess it's, you know, that seems to be where a lot of the controversy is for those who don't accept climate change. It's, hey, this stuff happens all the time. It's, it's been going on for years. You know, why should we, why should we worry? You know, this is normal weather stuff. So how do you sort of? Um, yeah. How do you pass out natural and, and, and human influence? Well, you know, there, there are tools available to us now that allow us to see the, the human influence in everything that happens. Let's say you get a big snowstorm in, in the central states. That storm might produce a foot of snow. And you think to yourself, okay, the world's getting warmer. Wouldn't you see rain? Well, not necessarily. You can still have air that's cold enough for snow. And if you get an unprecedented amount of moisture that is being input to that cold air mass, then you will get an unprecedented amount of snow. It's a counterintuitive outgrowth of climate change, but it is something that happens. And, you know, attribution scientists, which are climatologists with uh, degrees in statistics and so on, they use statistics and physics and, and they basically determine, you know, nine inches of that one foot was a function of natural process and the other three inches of that foot had at least something to do with human influence. So you can determine how much of what is is ours and how much of what is someone something else. And are those can, statistical are those to what extent are those statistical models sort of accepted as accurate science? You know, you know it's kind of, is, is it you know are, are they are they controversial or you know how what's what's that about? They are accepted by the science. And they are quoted by the science media. And we are seeing increasingly that weather is a function of both mankind and Mother Nature. And we're seeing increasing influence from human activities. And that 
influence will increase as we continue to burn fossil fuels and proliferate the air with greenhouse gases. What, one, of the things, one of the things that interested me and sort of scared me was that major, we only had one major hurricane that hit the United States this year. I can't remember the name of the hurricane, but Ian, uh, Ian thank you, Bob. Ian, go and, ahead, go ahead. And um, one of the things that, that interested me, and as I said, scared me, was the fact that, you know, uh, at the beginning, it, it was going to be sort of your quote-unquote normal hurricane, right? It was going to come in, it was going to do its damage, but it strengthened really, really quickly. And that seems to be a pattern, as I understand these things, right, where uh, sort of a hurricane can strengthen so much more quickly because of these uh, because of, of this weird weather that we're, that we're talking about. Is that, is that a factor of climate change? Yes. Um, you, you have to understand that rapid intensification has always occurred. Um, it was once thought to be rare. You know, maybe one out of every 15 hurricanes would rapidly intensify. And then as we look back at the data and was, were able to observe better, we saw rapid intensification occurring more often. But again, we could attribute certain aspects of hurricane behavior, be it intensification or weakening, to human-caused climate change. And we've also come around to the idea that, yeah, we're not just seeing it more often, but it is happening more often as well. And the increasing frequency of rapid intensification is an outgrowth of human influence on the climate system. Now, Another thing that you have to understand is we're not going to just see more rapid intensification, but the extent of rapid intensification will also increase. Mm -hmm. In order for a hurricane to be a rapid developer, as they are called technically, its winds must increase by 35 miles an hour in 24 hours. So you're basically talking about a wind speed increase that if calculated out over time is about one and a half miles an hour more, hour on hour. Now, we're going to see hurricanes that have wind speed increases of 70 miles an hour. It is possible that some of the most dramatic and extreme uh, manifestations of rapid intensification will feature hurricane increases with wind speeds that go up 100 or more miles an hour in 24 to 36 hours time, in 24 hours time. We saw that kind of thing with, with Wilma in the Caribbean. I was Caribbean just going to say Ohio. Wilma. Do, yep. We, yep, we saw that with Patricia. So if you look at the biggest and strongest hurricanes. What about Opal? Turn, oh, that, that was Yep, that was another one. If you look at the biggest, strongest hurricanes, the strongest hurricanes over the next 30 years undergo, they will undergo super and rapid intensification, 70, 80, 90, 100 mile an hour wind speed increases in a day. So, and we're going to see hurricanes that are that strong. So if you get a hurricane that is of unprecedented intensity because hurricanes are becoming stronger, the odds are that that hurricane will undergo Super or hyper-rapid intensification. Super rapid would be 70 mile an hour increase in 24 hours. Hyper rapid would be 100 or more MPH in 24 hours. What would you say was the strongest hurricane on record in, in the United States weather history? 
I would have to say the Labor Day Keys hurricane of 1935 still takes the cake. Barometrically speaking, if central pressure was at 892, uh, Hurricane Katrina had a, a pressure in the low 900s at its peak, but it weakened prior to the time that it walloped. Um, Hurricane Camille was in the low 900s at landfall. 1969. So, yep, that's right. You've got a good recollection of these things, uh, Robert. Yes, i got to say, I'm impressed with your recollection. No, so so help, me, help me with something. You, you mentioned these 900, 800 numbers. How does that, com- how does that compute with barometric pressure? Um, or does it? Well, Hurricane, it does. Hurricane Gilbert had a, uh, a central pressure of about, uh, 888 millibars, and that was about, about 2576. So, uh, in mercury terms, you don't see mercury in a Humber barometer go any, uh, as low as that did. I've never heard, so, I've yeah. never heard of such a thing. Wow. I've never oh, yeah. heard of such a thing. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're going to see all sorts of crazy, 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 crazy things happen in, in, in the, the world of weather. I really and truly think that you're, you're going to see hurricanes that are, you know, of unprecedented intensity. And we're going to rewrite the record books. You know, this hurricane will be the strongest, that one and the other one. But we're going to rewrite the, the, the top five, ten strongest hurricanes. If you look at the ten strongest hurricanes ever observed in the Atlantic in the year 2020 and compare that to the list that you see in 2050, they'll be totally different. Well, largely, if not totally different. Yeah. Yeah. This year there was only one, again, it's different all over the world. There was only one major hurricane that, that hit this country, which I guess we should be, we should feel fortunate about. But in the past few years, we've had quite a few, right? Three or four or five or six. Uh, yep, that's, any, any explanation about why that was the case? Well, the season just was, did not live up to its advertisement. It was not as active, active as advertised. And, you know, there was a lot of dry air in the Caribbean. There was a Saharan dust layer, which is basically a, a dust coming off the Sahara desert and out into the Atlantic. And that dust, you know, basically warms in much the same way that that sand, beach sand under your feet warms. And because it warms, it it causes the air above it to to heat and rise. So you've got an inversion. It's almost like having a terrace in the sky. Okay, because those properties the of dust are the same in the sky as they would be under your feet. They warm, and because they warm, they create a uh, they they corrupt the environment for tropical cyclone formation, and that corruption is one of the things that that made it so difficult for these whoppers to to stop whirling. Um, we we seem to be seeing a, a, a sort of end of season rush, so the forecast could conceivably be right in some ways, but for reasons that were totally different from what was originally predicted. I, I wouldn't count on that happening again next year or the year after. And, and I wouldn't dismiss its recurrence either. But uh, we kind of got lucky. Don't, don't count on, on luck to serve you consistently. And, 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 
and as and as we all say, uh, well, you all say, I, I'm not a climatologist. We're talking about probabilities. We're not talking about certainties, right? We're talking about there's the probabilities. Probabilities are pretty high that this kind of weird weather is going to intensify and be more common, right? Is that a fair way of putting that? That's a very fair way of putting it. No, you live in the in the central states. Now, you know, you guys are in the throes of a drought. And yep. Robert, you and I have discussed this in numerous discussions in the past. I, I contend that we're heading for a new Dust Bowl. And, you know, if you get rain now, that's a good thing. But the problem is the air is very, very warm. And that rain evaporates fast. So you get a lot of rain. That's flash flood. And then it evaporates fast. That's called flash drought. And I, I refer to the ephemeral relief. Ephemeral is fleeting or brief. Brought about by these rains as pyrite precipitation events. They're fool's gold. And that fool's gold basically fools all of us. Oh, we got liquid gold. And whoop, there it is. It's gone as fast as it, as it hit. Um, and if you have a dust bowl, you're going to have a lot of pyrite precipitation events. The ground will be baked dry, so it can't assimilate the very rapid intrusion of water. And that rapid introduction of water means that it will just run off. And what doesn't run off will just vaporize into the, into the warm air. So, uh, and that, re- that really, that really is true here. I mean, I mean, you know, we, we have gotten rain, um, but it usually happens in, in, Buckets, you know, we get in, in very short periods of time. We don't get these soaking rains that I remember we getting in the East Coast growing up. You know, it's sort of this these flash flood shower kind of things. They're done in half an hour, and then the sun comes out again. We don't get yep. as often these sort of soaking rains. That you know, that's again, that's kind of worrying, right? For for those of us who like to eat food, for example, right? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. You know, and I. I remember when when I was a kid coming up in the in the 70s, you know, you would get a nor'easter that hung around for three or four days, and that nor'easter would give you steady heavy rain. I mean, if you went 100 feet from your your house to the mailbox and back, you'd be soaked to the skin. But it wasn't the kind of downpour that you would see in a thunderstorm. It was steadier and heavier, and it wasn't as intense. So the ground could take what it was given called the soaking rain. They're referred to as stratiform rains as well. So all of these sort of changes in, in the atmosphere, the atmosphere in a warming world is going to be more convectively inclined. And the increasing convective inclination of weather means that even if you get a soaking rain, it will much more li- it is much more likely to be frequently punctuated by massive downpours mm-hmm. that you know, are blinding and they last for 10 minutes and you think to yourself, holy sugar bear, what on God's green earth caused that? And it's it's basically a function of the increasingly convective behavior of our warming atmosphere. There was a really Eden. weird, talk about weather weirding um, here in, in, in Missouri uh, this spring. So here in Columbia, Missouri, we got three quarters of an inch of rain, you know, normal sort of spring rain. St. Louis, yep. which is two hours to our east, got nine inches of rain. Oh, and it was it was crazy. I mean, you know, and they were having flooding problems, and 
you know, three quarters of an inch here rain. You know, we were sort of normal rain for us. Nine inches of rain in 12 hours. We're not talking about nine oh. inches of rain in three days. We're talking about nine inches of rain in 12 hours. Now, again, yeah. that yeah. might ha- that might happen with or without our spewing carbon dioxide into the into the into the into the atmosphere. You don't know that, but boy, it, it seems to be happening far more commonly than it, than it was, you know, uh, you know, however many years ago we're talking, we we're comparing it to. Well, that happens here in New England, right, Steve? I mean, you could have where yeah. you live. Uh, an inch of rain, and then Boston, which is not far from you, could have five or none. Yep, you, you know, people in New Bedford can get, you know, seven, eight, nine inches of rain because a thunderstorm stalled on top of them. In uh, 2004, a thunderstorm stalled over Lowell, Massachusetts for 100 minutes, and we got 3.36 inches of rain. That's all? In, in time, huh? That's all. That's all. Yeah. Oh no, 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 Bob. It happened so fast. No, but you know uh, what I brief... mean. With the length of time that you said that it stalled, it would be reasonable to assume that you get more than three and a half inches. Yeah, 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 but three inches an hour is astounding, right? I mean, that we're talking. That's a that's a lot of rain to fall in an hour, and most it's uh, more than an inch and a half an hour. It's a right. it's a it's, it's a cloudburst on steroids that didn't move away, and uh, we when it all was said and done. You know, we, we wound up with about 4.15 inches of rain out of that particular cloudburst. And, you know, that's a lot of rain. And, and an inch of rain is way more than you think. If you get an inch of rain deposited over, say, Massachusetts and Missouri, that rainstorm would deposit about 27,150 gallons of water onto every square acre of land that was drenched to that extent. So a, a uniformly distributed inch of rain would be about 27,150 gallons of water onto every square acre of land. It's about, a fill, it's about the amount of water you would need to fill a, a backyard swimming pool. So, Steve, before we open that up to our participants, I have a, an obvious question, and I'm sure a lot of other listeners would like to know this. What do you what think people should be doing to avoid uh, the further evolution of climate change by man. And Steve, b- b- before you answer that question, I, I want to sort of a-, a follow up with a sort of a case study. Uh, so, uh, New York City 10 years ago was hurricane superstorm, as they call it, Sandy, which caused all kinds of havoc in New York City, uh, with subways, you know, not running and flooding and, and power outages and it was a disaster. It was one of those storms that was not predicted. That, that, it, well, it's predicted, but it wasn't predicted to be so serious. You know, that's another one of those rapidly intensifying storms. There's been a lot of, of stuff in the media about 10 years later, what's going on in New York City. And, and the question sort of holds, you know, we have a, we have a polarity, if you will, to manage. We want to live our lives to the extent that we can, you know, and, and with the comforts. And yet we don't want to get inundated with this climate change stuff. How do you, how do you, how do you find that balance? What do you, how do you do that? Well, you know, there are a lot of things that, that, that we do that we don't even think about. You know, everyone talks about the carbon footprint. And I'm all right with the carbon footprint. It shows you just what you've done. You can say burning, you know, this amount of gas and that amount of wood and this amount of coal, you know, over the course of a day, you know, you know, cooking burgers on the grill will release 15 pounds of carbon dioxide. You're turning the, light on for 20 minutes will re- release three pounds. And when you calculate it, it comes out to a pretty amazing number. The problem is, you know, if you 
think about the 500 pounds of carbon dioxide that you might release into the air every day and say, well, we release 500 pounds or a quarter of a ton of carbon dioxide into a 5.75 quadrillion ton gas mass. Whoop-de-doo. The problem is, you know, what we really do in some ways is it's, we weave an organic tapestry. We, we pull out a little carbon thread through the greater thread. And all of us weave our thread through. And by the time the day is done, we've got this big carbon blanket that we've all produced and it grows day by day by day. You know, some of it's simply a matter of, I know it's inconvenient, but take public transportation. They're burning gas from one engine and they're going to move you and 60 other people from A to B. Um, and I think public transportation is something that we should invest more in. You know, I think that, you know, turning out lights when you leave rooms instead of leaving the lights on, those are all little things that can add up to immense benefits. You know, if you want to use a compact fluorescent, I have them. They're not that bad, you know, unless you have epilepsy or something that, that, that is, you know, makes it hard for you to, to use lights that have a vibration rate. You know, get them. They're, they're better. Um, we don't drive, but using cars with better fuel economy or, or using a, a, a hybrid or even an EV, you know, but I think the technology is, is really sort of coming to the point where we can adopt these new technical means to reduce emissions. I, I really think that that we can we can get the, the upper hand on this. And about Sandy, Sandy ten years later, I I think climate change uh has something to do with Sandy. I think climate change could bring us another Sandy. I'd be surprised if we never saw another Sandy again. Um but I also think that we should be be clear about some things here. You know, a big nor'easter like the blizzard of 78 could uh, exact the same toll on mm -hmm. New York City as Sandy. You don't need a weird, you know, hybrid superstorm, you know, wham monster. I call it, I call them the masquerading monsters of meteorology. Is it a snow cane? Is it a hurricane? What is this thing raising cane? Uh, we don't need exotic, dynamic circumstances like Sandy with the nor'easter and a hurricane coming together to create this amalgamation storm. You know, you could get a big storm like the Superstorm of 93, which is a more typical thing mm -hmm. in some way, produce the same effect. Look so up we the whole East Coast. Oh, that was crazy. We got 16 inches of snow in about five hours, and then it poured ever lovingly and was a bone chilling rain it was horrible in some ways it would have been better if that thing stayed out to sea and gave us all snow we were shoveling glop almost <laughs> so so uh, this is in perspective my name is peter altrell with bob branco and i think we're ready to open it for questions and before uh, we do i just want to thank jeanette who is filling in today for raymond uh, Jeanette, thank you very much for taking the time to help us out this afternoon. We appreciate it very much. And I want so, to um, invite people to raise their hands on the computer. It's Alt-Y. <clears throat> um, on the iPhone, it's in the lower right-hand corner uh, under the more. On the phone, it's star 9. 
And uh, I'll just wait for people to uh, raise their hands. And as soon as I see your hands, I'll call on you. Thank that you, Jeanette. Great. Thank you, Jeanette. Welcome. Okay. So, yeah. So just any, if you, you know, if, if you raise your hand, we will interrupt what we're doing and, and let you speak to our guest. So I've been sort of uh, wrestling with sort of the, the um, how to solve this problem. I, you know, we, we do have technology uh, that, that, you know, that seems to be happening that we should be able to support, you know, we should be uh, supporting that, the, the, these technology that will make things better for all of us. But, you know, one of the things that, that President Biden is, is encouraging and, and the government is for all of us to drive um, electronic vehicles, you know, with the batteries and the charging, it, 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 it doesn't spew a carbon, gasoline and oil. But as people are pointing out, the mining, you know, the electricity that's being generated creates its own set of problems. The batteries that these, that these cars run on require certain elements that, that require energy to, to get out of the earth. And it's not at all clear to me how much energy we save using those electric vehicles. Yeah, you're right. Do we, Fusing. if we save the atmosphere, can yeah. we, will we pollute the world because of the mercury or whatever that is in these batteries? And, you know, if we, if we use nuclear power, we got all those nuclear waste. And if we have, you know, and so in some ways you're basically, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul. I understand that. If you look at all of the technologies that exist, the, the big thing is that, you know, the, the solar guys are doing their thing. The wind guys are doing their thing. The geothermal people are doing their own thing. What we really need to do is we need to create a paradigm in which all of these divergent, you know, fire field ideas come, can be put together to create a whole new way of doing things. Like the green Peter? wave is dark. Yes, yes, we yes, have yes, a raised yes. hand. 607 694. You may unmute and ask your question. We'll, we'll come back to you. Thank you. Thank you for that. So welcome, uh, hand, hand raiser. Hello, this is Chad. Hey, this Chad. Chad. Hi, Chad. How are you? Morning. Um, I'm great. If there were not all these man-made weather troubles, then uh, what would the weather be like? We would be cooling. The world is warming at a time when it would have naturally cooled. We probably would see snowier and colder winters. Now, I came up in the 70s and 80s, and... I remember the winter of 1976-77. I was cold and snowy. The winter of 77-78 was colder and snowier. The winter of 78-79 was colder but less snowy. We should be heading for a new ice age, but we are warming the world. It is not enough to say that we are warming the, the world or changing the climate. We are, in effect, counter-modifying the climate. We are, we are changing the climate in a way that is completely counter to what natural processes would have done on their own. Well, what indicates to you, Steve, that we would have been heading for an ice age? The sun's well, output is increasing, and there are various oceanographic circulation features that we can point to, like the Pacific Decadal Oscillation and other things that we know would have actually <laughs> caused the world to cool. So we are we are profoundly disrupting the processes of natural climate change 
through the human forcing of the climate system. And you force the climate by making it do something that it would not have otherwise done. So, so Steve, I didn't hear you say the word ice age uh, in that question. I heard you say that if we weren't, uh, uh, you know, uh, throwing this stuff into the atmosphere and doing what we're doing, it would be, it would be colder, right? It, but it wouldn't be. We would be heading for a new ice. Oh, we, we would, would be. be heading. For new- oh, okay. Yep. Then I, I stand corrected. Forgive me. No, we would be heading for a new ice age. And we have another uh, raised hand. Thank you, Chad. I Thank think you, Chad. it's Beth, but it's 505 ending in 638. You may ask your question. Beth, if that's you. Hello. Yes, yep, it, yeah, is. it is Beth. It, it hi, is Beth. me. Um, hi. Hi. So, well, they want us to, to eat more plant-based food. And uh, they say that includes insects. You. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, for the it, for the it, it, for the climate, you know, for the green stuff. To you know what I mean? I don't know. I think that's yep. kind of gross to be eating insects. I really do. Well, you know, I I can understand, and I think that this move to a, a vegan or vegetarian diet. Is actually a good thing, but we have to understand something, that there's more to this dynamic than meets the eye, okay? Basically, we are creating, we're perpetrating mutual murder, or bilateral murder, okay? You eat a Baconator, and I eat a Baconator, and my friend Dorothy Donovan, who is with me in the other room in my unit, eat a Baconator. It's not going to kill us, and it isn't going to kill the planet, but if we eat that Baconator. Every day of the week, our cholesterol will go up, our risk for heart disease will go up, and we may live five or seven or ten years less than we would have otherwise. We've got an obesity epidemic because we raised our kids on Whoppers and Big Macs and Baconators. So, you know, the in some ways, it, it really works all around. We, we're fixing the planet, and we're also helping our waistlines. So, you know, the the idea of going plant-based is actually better for the world, and it's better for us. We are. I don't like not, vegan food. I think it's gross. Yeah, see that. See, you, that's, don't have, that's, you don't have to eat insects. You can eat a. You can eat. You know. You can eat an apple. You can eat strawberries. You can eat whatever. You know. You don't have to sit there and 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 be confined to the yucca ducker of chocolate-covered cockroaches or whatever it is that... that yeah, that or I don't like the soy products either, though. They're gross. Like well, beyond what? meat. This is, this you know is what? You, you can this have whatever you want. What this you is eat part. isn't going <laughs> to... You know, what we eat will. And what we eat might also do. So in some ways, it's, it's individual and it's also co- collective. Yeah, see, I think this is part of the problem. Beth is right. I mean, some of that's, we're so used to eating those baconators. I love baconators. They're awesome. Uh, but you know, uh, they, they aren't, they aren't really good for you. They're not good for the climate. And so the challenge that I think dietitians have and uh, the scientists is how can we make it not just, uh, how, how can we encourage people to, to do, move towards something, then move away from something else? In other words, uh, yeah. you know, and, and that's the real challenge because Beth is right. Who wants to eat insects in the United States? Now, insects are, if you go to Africa or if you go to uh, other places in, in Latin America, people eat, eat insects all the time. It's a, it's a main source of protein for them. 
you know, and they found ways yeah. to cook it. I've never had insects before, except once they were featuring locust ice cream here in Colombia when we had a bunch of locusts. And then, you know, it was, it was crunchy and it was sort of weird tasting. It was kind of fun, right? For me, I'm not taking for anybody else, but, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily want to do it again. But, you know, the, the question <laughs> that I think we, we all have to figure out is how can we encourage each of us to do eat less, a little less meat, right? Maybe one less yep. uh, baconator, uh, oh, you know, over a week's period or whatever it is, you know, um, <clears throat> because if we make it, make it as a threat, people won't, won't do it. They just won't. So this might be a silly question. How would a baconator or eating a baconator affect our climate? Well, it, car, raising cattle for either for milk or, or, or meat purposes consumes a lot of carbon. There's a lot of carbon involved. You need to till the fields using power equipment. You need to, um, you need to run, uh, the 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 places that <clears throat> the plant that is required to to facilitate these these processes and you know you're you're doing things that that take power and carbon is released when you know when when cattle you know liberate uh, the but we've the been metabolic- raising we've been raising cattle since time began we have but so. You know, if agriculture is a carbon, is carbon progenerative process. So it, the plants that you grow, be they tomatoes or cucumbers, remove CO2. The animals that you raise generate it. So there's a net increase with meat and there's a net decrease with the vegetables and fruit. So, Bob, to answer my, my sort of take on this is for what it's worth, and Steve, correct me if I'm wrong. You know, this wouldn't matter so much if we were generating so much, you know, uh, you know, oil and, and, you know, and, and, you know, plastics and all that stuff into the air. You know, if, if, if this was sort of a, you know, if we were generating all this electricity and stuff, this wouldn't matter so much, but it's, it's the fact that we're adding more and more of this, uh, you know, uh, stuff that's, you know, into the air that's from, from our manufacturing and from our turning the lights on and all that stuff we've talked about. That's the problem, right? It's not the agriculture yep. is, is, is a, is a byproduct or, or, or is, is a smaller part of the problem. Yeah. Hey, Dorothy, do you want to contribute? I mean, Dorothy's listening to me as, as my, my lady. Is Hi, everybody. Say, Teddy hey, Dorothy. I don't have anything specific to add right now. Okay. Then we can take it to the next person calling. From the outside here. Let's go for it. Nora has a question. Nora, you may unmute. Hey, Nora. Yeah, hello. Good afternoon, everyone. Yes, Nora, you're good. Yep, yeah. Um, I remember hearing about many, many, many years ago, if possible, too, that when people used to run fireplaces years and years ago and they burned wood and burned coal and stuff like that, it's possible that, not my question, but a comment, it's possible that that may have gone into our atmosphere way back when. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, we've been burning fossil fuels for centuries and proliferating the atmosphere with greenhouse gases. So all of that carbon-based content, when we oxidize the carbon, we release carbon dioxide. And... 
So in some ways, we <clears throat> we need to seriously think about what that what that does. And, right. and you know, yeah, if that also includes like when you burn, you know, burning fireplaces and uh, when people did not have electricity, they had, you know, coal lamps and propane gas type lamps and everything. That may have yeah. contributed. Yeah, we, it, it, we use yeah. things differently, and as we be modernized, we found ways to heat our houses more consistently and more effectively, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And all of those advances increased the amount of CO2 that we could generate as a function of our warming processes. If you think about mm-hmm. it, you know, we're in November now. November, December, January, February, and March can be ratty months particularly in the northern tier. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're going to be using heat for one de- to one degree or another now for the next four or five months. And yeah. unfortunately, you know, climate change may make our winters warmer, but it isn't going to make our winters go away. No. You know, polar vortex events, there are with the troughs that we see, they'll bring cold air into the, United States from Canada and so on. So remember 2015, Steve? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Remember 2013, 14, how cold it was and how long it was cold? I mean, you know, don't throw away your Parker and Snow shovel yet. There's a lot of shoveling and shivering ahead of us. I mean, for those of Even you who don't the- know, for those of you who don't know, late January right through mid-March of 2015, we were buried in snow over here. We were getting oh. storm after storm after storm, and they were big ones. They were big. Now, I want to speak to that just briefly. You know, we're seeing a a lot of high-latitude ridging. Ridges are high-pressure centers. Okay, and if you look at that tendency, we're seeing what is called high-over-low blocking, which occurs when, say, high in Maine blocks an area of low pressure east of Virginia, the highest up above the low, which is to itself. And we're seeing more of this kind of thing. So I think that if you look at the the storms that we see in the next 10, 15, 20, 25 years, we are going to see the potential for lengthy and violent standoffs between blockbuster lows and blocking highs. Now, a high can block a low, causing it to stall and sit in place for hours, even days. Do you remember the 100-hour snowstorm of 1969, Robert? Yes, I do. February 24th through the 28th. That was incredible. A storm stalled for 100 hours, four days and four hours. That was crazy. That was cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs crazy. So as the world warms, we may see more of that kind of thing. And we, we, we see that with hurricanes too, right? I mean, you know, they, they, they come on air and usually they move fairly quickly, but sometimes they stall. And yeah, that's they're, right. they're moving slower. What are those? Uh, oh. uh, are the, yeah, go ahead. Oh no, that was just clearing her throat, right? Oh. Dearest? Well, okay. yes, but I do have something to say. Go ahead. Isn't the real problem using gasoline and oil based products? To heat our homes and run our vehicles and so on. Isn't that what's contributing the most of the carbon dioxide? Yes. Uh, coal is the biggest contributor by far, but its use is, is falling out of favor. 
we are still using oil and gas, and their their prolific use is actually bringing us even greater emissions of carbon dioxide than we had 20, 30, 40 years ago. We're seeing year-on-year increases in emissions, but the, the emissions curve is is flattening a little bit. So we are we are making progress. We're tiptoeing. Uh, the right way, but we need to take giant steps going forward. You know, what, what, what this reminds me of, Steve and Bob, is uh, wouldn't it be nice uh, if we could rally around? I'm thinking about what happened uh, when President John F. Kennedy, uh, you know, uh, gave, gave us a challenge to go to the moon and come back by the end of the of the decade, and we were successful. I think that's what we sort of <clears throat> need uh, to deal with this climate change situation. I agree. <clears throat> we need I think a, that would be a really a interesting uh, M&I. Yep. Yeah, we, we, we need a challenge. And that, you know, sometimes challenges bring, you know, you know that I've done a lot of work on creating common ground. Sometimes a challenge like that, if people take it seriously, can really bring people together. And that may be what, maybe that, you know, we, we do need to, I think we, I personally think we do need to take this climate change thing more seriously than we are. Um, but a lot of people don't. But, you know, if we can if we can find somebody to say, hey, this is important, let's let's work together to make this happen. Um, we, we, we might get some more faster than we are now. I, I totally agree with you. I, I completely agree with you. Um, I, 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 I've often said, you know, innovate, don't legislate. You know, you're never going to get 100 Pauls to see any one thing the same way. They, they bring completely different interests. To the same table, they are influences purchased by individuals who have completely different or varying interests. The only way we're going to fix this is through innovation. You'll never get you'll never get ten Pauls to see one thing the same way. There, what there kind of innovation? Competing. What kind of what kind of innovation are we talking about? Well, the proliferation of solar panels and the the further development of wind and, and geothermal and tidal energy and the development of other technologies. It's even possible that we could put solar panels in space and those solar panels don't have the disruption of clouds and air pollution in its solar noon all the time. They can generate monstrous quantities of solar, uh, of uh, energy and they can transmit that down to the surface of the earth in the form of microwaves, which are then picked up by microwave towers that are placed throughout the United States and turned back into electricity, which is then put into the grid. We could we could take this the carbon club and knock them halfway back to the Stone Age simply by putting a, a an array of, of uh, solar panels into space that would allow for the development of, of energy on a grand scale. Now you can put EV into a charging station and basically have it charged by the sun because the sun's running the power grid. And, and this stuff this stuff is being researched as we speak, right? I mean I'm not an expert in this at all, but I my understanding is this stuff's being researched and played with and we just we don't hear a lot about it and we should. You know we This we, idea was was by NASA scientists in the 1970s. And there was a big brouhaha that said, well, wouldn't these microwaves mess up the migratory 
uh, behavior of birds? And what would the other impacts on that uh, be? What would knock-on impacts be in the, in the greater environment? And I guess they've determined that, that this, this technology could work and it wouldn't do a whole lot to alter the aviaries of our world. The problem is it's hard to know until it's actually put in place. You, know, you can make these predictions and you do your best, but you never really know what's going to happen until you, you know, implementing. What I'm thinking about is these wind farms, right? That they put up, uh, you know, to, for wind energy. And it's had a major problem with the birds, right? They run into these, these turbines and they, you know, seagulls, as I understand it. And maybe they found ways of working around that problem. But for a while, that was a major problem. Um, if I'm, you know, if I remember, if I remember my facts correctly. What happened with well, the seagulls? They they would get caught in the blades and they would they would be injured or killed. Okay. Yeah, it was it was just a major uh, you know it was, it was just a major problem. Maybe they found a way to, to to work around that problem, but it's those kinds of things that are hard to you, you never quite know what the effects of these things are going to be until you actually start implementing them. You know, and, and there are always going to be surprises. That's just part of innovation, right? There are things that you you can't force you can't foresee. And that's okay. Yep, the law of unintended consequences. Yeah, that's that's exactly that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. We have about two more minutes, but Steve, what I wanted to do at this time is ask you uh, one final question here. It's been regarded by many people that the whole climate change issue has gotten too political. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's political, but it's also personal. You know, if if you think about what any extreme does. If you have a 10-day heat wave that sends temperatures off the charts, you know, that heat wave could conceivably kill hundreds or thousands of people if you got coinciding power failures. If that can be linked to the power grid, you know, now you've got an issue that that pertains to, to the politicians. We need to invest in the power grid, or we need to give the power companies tax incentives to improve the power grid. So you know, there are a lot of things that, that reverberate back to, to politics. But I, I've often said, you know, and I'm, I'm becoming increasingly, you know, resolute in this idea that, you know, we need to innovate. We need to develop the technologies that will allow us to phase out fossil fuels. And I think that politicians should basically, you know, support the development of clean technologies. You know, oil companies. We're out of time, unfortunately, Steve, but we want to have you back, not only to continue this discussion, but when your book comes out, we want to talk about your book. So I'll have you back on at that time. Just let us know when right. that's going to take place. But in the meantime, thanks for being a guest again here on In Perspective. And I want to thank our participants for contributing and Jeanette for filling in today as our host. And, of course, Peter for helping us out as well. Next week, we're going to have a Veterans Day tribute. I'm in the process now of putting a panel together, and we'll give more information out when it's ready to be given out. Thank you, everybody, and go safe with God's abundant blessings. Take care. 